Let's go ahead and pray as we come to the word this morning. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And this morning, Lord, as we look into your word, I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be open. And as we talk about the, uh, the gospel this morning, Lord, that it would just create inside of us a yearning. Just like Paul said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I pray that everybody here would have that same feeling inside of them. And this morning, Father, I pray that our eyes are opened and that we understand fully what the gospel is so that we can effectively share it with others. And we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you'll notice the last couple of weeks, um, Pastor Joseph and I have actually ministered on, on quite similar topics, even though we didn't confer beforehand. And I always love that because you can see when God is moving and God's speaking to both of us to talk about similar things, to minister to similar things, because I believe that, that God wants us to hear a couple things. And what we ministered the last couple weeks, you remember two weeks ago I ministered that, that uh, it was about how you see them, talking about the value of the harvest, the value of the loss. And Pastor Joseph last week ministered on being compassionate to those who were lost. So as we're going through the week, I've been pressing on my heart. So what does that look like? How does it, what does it look like to see people like I see them? What does it look like to have compassion for them? And the first thing that might come to our mind is, you know, we want to take care of people, right? We want to bless them, make sure they have their needs met and all those things. And that's, that's important. We believe in that here at the church. That's why on our website, you can just go to uh, marana.church slash get dash help. Real simple, real easy to remember. And if you go there and you know anybody that needs help, they just have to go in and put their email address and their name and a phone number and tell me what's going on. And, and we've been able to bless so many people that were struggling because of COVID or because of different things and needed help paying a bill or getting food or doing any of those things. And, and we believe in that. We want to be compassionate and loving to the world around us. But how many know that that is secondary to the way that we should be showing compassionate and love to others? You see, anything that we do for people on this earth, it's, it's, it's temporal. It's only temporary. Even if we had the resources to take care of everybody's needs till the day that they die, it still wouldn't be good enough for them. Sure, they might have it easy now, but if we don't share something much more important, then that's where it ends. And we're looking to share something eternal. I believe the best way that we can show compassion, that we can recognize the value of people and to demonstrate that we recognize that value is to share the gospel with them. And it's not only corporately, right? The church, we want to do things. We want to do outreaches. Uh, hopefully, we're going to start seeing more and more of that as we're finally getting out of the COVID craziness and things are dying down. We want to start doing more things like that again. But it's not just a corporate responsibility. It's not just the church at large's responsibility. It's each and every one of us as individuals. You remember the Great Commission. It doesn't say uh, the church should go and make disciples. He was talking to each and every one of us individually. We need to go and make disciples, preach the gospel. But here's the thing. It's really hard to preach the gospel if you don't know what it is. And one of the things that I want you to think about right now, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? Could you give me a simple and concise answer to what the gospel actually is? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Did you know that the term gospel in the ESV translation, what I usually use, the term gospel is found 120 times. And the NASB translation is actually translated 99 times. So somewhere between 100 and 120 times the word gospel is found in the, in the New Testament. And the Greek New Test Testament, the 
Uh, gospel is the translation of the noun euangelion. I actually looked up how to pronounce that word, so I would say it right. Euangelion. And that occurs 76 times in the New Testament, and it means good news. And the verb euangeliso occurs 54 times, and that means to bring or to announce good news. Both of those words are derived from the, the noun angelos, which means messenger. In classical Greek, euangelos was the one who brought a message of victory or other political or personal news that caused joy. In addition, euangelizomai, uh, which is the middle voice form of the verb. Does anybody know what the middle voice form of the verb means? I don't, but that's what that one means. <laughs> and that means to speak as a messenger of gladness or to proclaim good news. And then further, the noun. Everyone know what a noun is? You should. Otherwise, we've got to talk about our school systems. Further, the noun evangelion became a technical term for the message of victory, though it was also used for political or private messages that brought joy. So the quickest, simplest, most concise definition of the gospel is the good news. All right? And the gospel is so important to who we are as Christians that we must be aware of what it actually is so that we don't misrepresent it. It's very important that we don't misrepresent it. And the truth is, it is so much easier to do than you think. We see the gospel misrepresented on a daily basis all the time. We see it all the time in the Christian community, the gospel actually being misrepresented. When I was in college, which was, I guess about 20 years ago now, 22 years ago now, there was a guy in the mall at the U of A, and the, the, the mall, does anybody know why they call the silly grassy area a mall? That doesn't make any sense to me. I grew up being the mall was where you went to, to get ice cream and hang out with friends. Anyway, that grassy area in the middle is called the mall, and there was always this guy in the mall who would go around, and he was just spitting fire and brimstone, and he would tell all the kids how they're going to hell and how everything they're doing is wrong, and, and he, was, he would just rail on these kids. And I kept thinking, what's the good news in that? That's not preaching the gospel. Now, he never said anything that wasn't untrue. But the problem is, is we don't want to tell people how miserable that they have it or how awful they have it, except in the context that there's a way out. The truth is the good news is about that Jesus paid for all those things so that they don't have to go to hell, so they don't have to, 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 to live in a fiery furnace for the rest of their life, be separated from God. The good news is, is that Jesus gave his life so that they could be made brand new and be set free from all of that. But if you only focus on that part, it just doesn't seem like good news to me. And then we also have stuff in almost every tragedy that happens. There's always somebody saying how it's God punishing people for sin. And uh, the truth is, is that God already punished Jesus for sin. Why would he have to do it some more? One of the funniest ones that always drove me crazy is, is do you remember when we had that big hurricane that, that, that hit uh, uh, Louisiana and New Orleans? Yeah, Katrina. God said that was... That was uh, uh, that was God punishing the people of, of, of New Orleans for the red light district and all the, all the sin that was going on there. Did you know the red light district wasn't, da- wasn't damaged in that, that hurricane? Either God's got the worst aim ever or we misunderstood something. 
And we also hear all the time when the, when, in churches a lot is that uh, works are so often pushed as a requirement that salvation that you can almost forget or that you could almost be forgiven as a young believer if you thought that was the plan of salvation. But this is what Paul said about the gospel. Because I believe that since the beginning, people were misrepresenting the gospel. He says this in Galatians 1, 6-8, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want to be found preaching the wrong gospel. Either intentionally or maliciously, or, or even accidentally. We don't want to accidentally preach the, the, the wrong gospel because we misunderstand something. That's why it's important that we study our Bible and study our Word, and that's what I want to look at today. What is represented in the gospel? So in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So now we know Paul's talking about the gospel, right? The gospel that I preached to you. He says in, in verse 2, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then, all, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now here we see some key aspects of the gospel. This actually isn't every aspect of the gospel because Paul is actually replying to a specific, um, uh, to a specific attack. They're saying that, that resurrection uh, doesn't happen, that resurrection doesn't exist, and that's, that's what he's primarily dealing with here. But we begin to see some key aspects of the gospel. First is that Jesus lived and then he died. That's part of the gospel. He was a real person who really lived. He's not a fictional character. He's not a, uh, uh, some myth or fantasy. Um, he really lived. He was a real person. And then he died for the forgiveness of our sins. He, he was uh, hung on a cross, and he died for us. And then finally, his burial was evidence of his death. You don't typically bury live people. Right? So that's, that's the first part here. So we got he was buried and he was raised. So that we got he was buried because he was dead. Next we find out that he, he rose again, right? He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And he rose again so that we would have newness of life. And this reality that he rose again was evidenced by the fact that he was seen by the apostles, then by 500 plus disciples, and then finally Paul. It wasn't something that was done in secret, and, but lots and lots of people saw him. And you know, when you look at this from an uh, apologetic perspective, looking for the evidence, you know, when, when Paul is writing this, the apostles were still alive. Those 500 disciples were still alive. They would have said something if he was lying. We would, we would see other writings saying that, no, Paul's just making it up because there were so many witnesses. 
And then finally, we are saved by faith. We believe to receive his salvation. Right? That's up here. It says, uh, which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached unless you believed in vain. As an aside, I want you to see something that's important here. He says that you have to hold fast to the word I preached. It's not something you can do once, but you continue in belief for the rest of your life. Because if you just do it once, if you don't hold fast, then that time you believed, you believed in vain. That's what the word says. So as we talked about these these three key aspects, right? That Jesus lived and then he died, that Jesus rose again, and that we're saved by faith. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a look at each one of those a little more in detail. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. So one of the things I pointed out, it's really important part of the gospel, is that Jesus really did live. And, and this verse is like a nut, uh, describes in a nutshell the work of Jesus Christ. One, it says he was manifested in the flesh, right? Christian and um, uh, uh, secular scholars alike all agree that Jesus lived. This actually isn't a contested fact. Anybody who contests that Jesus really lived is are our fringe, very fringe off to the side, and, and nobody agrees with him. Everybody believes that Jesus lived because we have writings about him both in the gospel and other uh, Christian writings, but we have writings about him in non-Christian writings as well in other historical documents. Nobody contests that he lived. The big point of contestation is who he was. Was he just a man? Was he a prophet? Was he crazy? Or was, as he claimed to be, the Son of God? Um, I forget who it was that talked about this, but he said that there's, a, there's the three L's when you talk about Jesus. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. That's the only options that were given. Matter of fact, when people say, oh, no, I believe he was a prophet or he was a good man or a good teacher, that's actually not an option that you can take. That is not an option that's on the table. Because Jesus didn't say I'm a good teacher. He said I'm the Lord. He declared that he was God. So if he said that, you have to, if if he said that, you have three options. You can either say he's a liar. You can't say, no, I know you said that, but I just think you're a good teacher. A good teacher wouldn't say something like that if it was a lie, amen? So your three options are as he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, he's crazy, right? Somebody says they're God, they're either lying, they're crazy, or they are who he says, or they are who they say they are, and that's our three options. And of course, we believe, and I believe that the, the evidence supports both historically and in and, and each and every one of your lives that, that, that he was God. He was who he said he was. But then it goes on to say that after he was manifest in the flesh, he lived, he was vindicated by the Spirit. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, that proved that he was who he said he was. And then it says he was seen by angels. He was exalted above all. Hebrews 1.6 says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the gods, let all, all God's angels worship him. And then it says he was proclaimed among the nations. That means first by the apostles and the disciples and then by us. So we're talking about today, right, sharing the gospel. We're those who proclaim him among the nations. And then he was believed on in the world because he was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. 
Matthew 16, 18 says this, and you remember this was Peter's response to when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he says, and I tell you, and, and Peter said, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock. And some people say that this rock that he's talking about is Peter because Peter's name sounds very similar to the, to the, to the Greek word rock. But the, the, the reality is, is what he was talking about is, is this belief who do you say I am? This belief that you are the Son of God, that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God, that is the rock on which he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because he's believed on in the world, amen? And then he was taken up in glory. His ascension into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father. Do you know why he sits at the right hand of the Father? Because it's finished. There's no more work to do. He gets to sit down. But the main point of this is to really understand that Jesus really did live. The person of Jesus Christ is inseparable from the redemptive work that he did on the cross. If there is no Jesus, there is no cross, there is no redemption. And he was a real person that lived. He was fully man and fully God. And the reason why this is important, because if he didn't live, it's really hard for him to die for our sins. The next thing that we want to take a look at is in uh, Hebrews 7.27. It says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. So when Jesus lived and then he died, he paid the penalty for our sin. There is a penalty for sin, and instinctively, we all know it. That's why you have a conscience. That's why we have a moral compass. Now, you can break your moral compass if you ignore it long enough, but each and every one of us have been born with that conscience. We know what right and wrong is because it's written on our heart. The truth is, is that you don't have to tell people they need a Savior because they know. And then the Holy Spirit testifies that to them to, of that as well. And in Romans 6.23 is a you know, very famous verse. We all know this. The wages of sin is death. And here's the thing, God is good, God is righteous, and God is holy. And what that means is he can't just sweep sin underneath the rug. And I think we all understand this as well because we actually all have an innate sense of justice. We all understand it's, it's the whole reason why we have a legal system in place in this country. It's because all of us have a sense of morality, a sense of justice. And for justice to be done, a penalty has to be paid for a crime. This is why there is such an uproar when somebody wealthy does something horrendous and they get a, a, a tiny little slap on the wrist. It's because we all have a sense of justice and we understand that that's wrong. So how does God make us right but still remain just? Because the penalty for sin must still be paid. So that's why he sent his son to pay that penalty for us. It's like the, the story of the judge who has a friend who gets a, a very bad speeding ticket. And when the guy goes to court, it turns out that his, his long-term friend is the judge. And everybody in the courtroom, he knows that they're friends. So they expect the judge to go really lenient on him. But they were all shocked when it turns out that the judge threw the book at him. And he upheld every law, every statute that was broken and fined him accordingly. There was no 
sweeping it under the rug. And then after it was all said and done, the judge gets off from behind his bench. He takes off his, his robes and he walks up and he pulls out his own wallet and pays the penalty for the speeding ticket from his very own pocket. That's like what Jesus did for us. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. There's no way around that. That's just a reality. A just God, for him to sweep that under the rug and just ignore it would make him no longer just, which would make him no longer God because that is one of his innate qualities of who he is. But Jesus paid the penalty for us. God the Father sets the infraction, sets the penalty, and then he gets off his throne. God, in Jesus, as Jesus, comes and gives his life for us. Jesus was fully God. You know, that's one of the things people think, oh, it's some sort of, of heavenly child abuse. One, Jesus was a grown man, not a, not a little boy. He made the decision on his own to do it. But two, Jesus is God. And he gave his life for us. God paid the penalty for us. And because of that, nothing more is owed. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's the result of that once-for-all payment. We've been forgiven of our sins. And the reality is, is this is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. You can't work hard enough. You can't do it yourself because the, 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 the very first sin you ever sinned was enough to incur the death penalty. And this idea that Jesus paid for all of our sins, it's not a unique concept in Scripture. In Hebrews 8.12, it says, For I'll be merciful towards their inequities, and I will remember their sin no more. Psalms 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus paid the penalty for sin, so when God looks at us, he doesn't see somebody that owes something, he sees somebody that's already been redeemed. We've been delivered and we've been forgiven and there's no sin that will cause you to go to hell save one. Or there's, only, there's no sin that, that, that cannot be forgiven save one and that's if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior before you die. That's the time limit you have until then. And this means that all sin, no matter how bad it is, is forgivable. If we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ. It can and will be forgiven. That means lying, yep, lying can be forgiven. Anger, yep. Gossip, yep. Stealing, yep. Homosexuality, yep. Adultery, yep. Fornication, yep. Abortion, yep. Murder, yeah. Every sin that you could possibly conceive of is forgiven in Jesus Christ. You see, we classify sin as being different. And there is some truth to that, right? Lying is, is a little less than, than uh, a grievous than murder. But the truth is, is that both lying and murder both enact the death penalty. The wages of that sin is still death. But in Jesus we're forgiven and he remembers our sins no more because the slate has been wiped clean. Not because of anything we did, but because of what he did. My favorite description of how far sin is removed from us is that one I just read earlier, Psalm 103.12. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does it remove our transgression from us. 
I love this one for a couple of reasons. One, because it's only something that God could say at this point in time. Back then, they're not understanding the rotation of the earth. They're not understanding that at the north and south, there's poles. But when you go east and west, you can keep going forever. And that's why it's beautiful to me. Because if he said, your sins were as far from you as the north is to the south, how many know that if you keep going north, you'll eventually hit the pole? And when you cross the pole, what direction are you going? North eventually hits south. But how many know that when you go east, what happens? You always are going east. And if you're going west, you're always going west, which means the two ends never meet, which means it's an infinite distance. Our sins are from us. That's amazing to me. And it shows me that God was in it because God understood how he made the earth and how it rotates and how that works, even though they probably didn't fully understand it at that time. And then in Romans 6, 6 through 11, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus. What I believe the most important part of the gospel is that Jesus rose again from the dead. You see, your old sin, your old self, the one that was bound to sin, the one that was bound to death is dead and gone the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Because your old man died with Jesus. Jesus took your life and died on the cross and he gave you his life, a new one, when he rose again. The old man was crucified with Christ. And that's actually what the picture of baptism really is. Is it's your death and then being buried when you go under the water and then rising again in newness to life when you come out of the water. Not that we each do that individually, but we do that by faith in Christ. We die with him and we arise, rise again with him. And when something is dead, it no longer has any influence. It has, no longer has any rights. Just ask somebody who due to some mistake was considered legally dead how long it takes to get that paperwork straightened out. If you're dead, you can't do anything. You have no rights. You have no recourse. The truth is, is that our old man is dead. It has no rights. It has no recourse in our lives. And that's why it says here that we must consider ourselves dead to sin because we have no interaction or influence or connection with it. Amen? And it has no rights to us either. Just like when a person dies, the debt collectors can't come and get your money. How many of you know that debt doesn't pass on from parents to their kids? This is how our legal system works. Now, they will go ahead and jack up your estate for everything they think that they're owed, but the debt doesn't get passed on. If you owe a million dollars to somebody and you pass away, your kids aren't liable for that money. In the same way with with, with, with sin. Sin can't collect anything from us because the old self is dead. That's why we're free from sin. It has no rain on us. But instead, we are alive to God in Christ. We are new. We are free. 
And as such, we finally have the ability to live that way. Amen? Amen. Then Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Another key component of the gospel is that we are saved by faith. Grace is amazing as it's God's free gift to us. But you have to take hold of it by faith. You know, one of the things that, that some will claim is that, that, oh, faith is some sort of works. But if you read the, 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 the New Testament, it talks about faith all the time, but it's never equivocated to works. Faith is never thought of as works. So one of the ways that I like to think about it is if a radio station called you and said, you want a million dollars. How many of you know that that million dollars is yours at that moment? You want it, it's in your name. But you know what you don't have? You don't have it in your pocket. You have to drive down to the radio station and get it. That's kind of like faith. When, when salvation is ours, it's a free gift from God, but you have to grab hold of it by faith. And we put our trust in him. Put our trust in what Jesus did to save us, letting go of every other manner in which man thinks that they can save themselves. And there's certainly a lot of them out there. If you live good enough, if you do the right things, depending on which religion people subscribe to, there's all kinds of, of uh, rules and regulations they have to make to, to somehow be saved. But the truth is, is there's nothing that we can do to be saved except for accept that free gift from God by faith. And we'll talk more about that uh, it really is a gift here shortly. And then Acts twenty eighteen through 21, uh, Paul says uh, this. He says, when they came to him, they said to them, you yourselves know how he lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, and what happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you to the public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And one thing that I think gets sloughed over a lot in the gospel message is that repentance is actually part of the gospel message. This is what it looked like when Paul preached the gospel. He says that when I was with you, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. And why, why is this important? Why do they go hand in hand? Why is repentance so important? I think we can get some more information if we read Romans 6, 1 through 4. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were buried therefore with him by his baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The reality is, is that when you are born again, you are raised new. You are a new creation. And that's 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're no longer a slave to sin. You see, one of the greatest uh, uh, pieces of good news contained in the gospel is that, that we no longer have to sin. It no longer has control over us. We are completely free from it. 
But if we choose to sin after we're saved, then we're living contrary to the gospel, contrary to what has happened inside of us. You know, and that's one of the dangerous things that we can do is try to see how close to sin we can get without touching it. The truth is you should stay as far away from it as you possibly can because you've been set free from it. You don't have to live like you used to live. You're not stuck in those ways because Christ has set you free. And Paul says clearly, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. And I said we get back to the idea that salvation is a gift. It says, for the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we talked about that same concept just a couple verses ago in Ephesians 2.8, right? It's not of our own doing, but it's the gift of God. And I think this is a huge stumbling block for many people because it's so contrary to what we've been taught our entire life. We're taught we have to work for things. We have to earn them. And in most cases in life, that's important. You do have to work. You can't just freeload. You can't get by. But the reality is, is that, that salvation is a gift, even though so many people think it's too simple. All we have to do is receive that free gift in faith. John 1 12 says this, uh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We receive him by believing in his name. But for some reason, some of us get stuck in this idea that we have to do something to earn God's love or we have to earn something to earn salvation. We, we, we begin to think that we have to work for it or to make amends. And we've been trained in life to believe, rightly so, that if something is too good to be true, then it probably is. And I would say in almost every case, this is the truth, except for in the case of salvation. Because the only requirement is to receive it by faith. To believe Jesus is who he said he was. And he did what he said he did and believe and rely on him to do the things that he said he would do. The truth is, is God that is God is not sending anybody to hell. That's one of the, the talking points from, from people that don't believe in God. I don't want to believe in somebody who would send anybody to hell. Well, good, neither do I. But God is not going to send anybody to hell. Everyone who goes there has made the decision themselves. Because the provision has already been made for everybody. All you have to do is receive it. Amen. So in a nutshell, what is the gospel? And I think these are the, the, the key points that I drew out that I think we all need to be aware of. One, we have to understand that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died for our sins, and that results in our forgiveness. Two, Jesus rose again, and as a result, we have a brand new life. Three, salvation is received by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. Four, you must repent, turning from sin to God. And five, salvation is a gift. If you remember these points and you'll express those to people, I think we'll be doing well to present the gospel in the way it must. And we can't leave parts out. You can't preach the gospel without repentance. The gospel is not a license to sin. It's freedom from sin, amen. 
That's why we have to turn away. You can't preach the gospel saying that you have to earn it because salvation is a gift. Well, I hope this is helpful to everybody today. And I, I hope that now that you've left, if, if at the beginning I asked the question, if somebody asked you what the gospel was, could you give a, 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 a clear, concise, short definition? I hope after today that you can. And uh, let's take it in, and take it seriously because we have to share this with others. You know, we can have compassion. We can show love for others by giving them stuff, but it's always temporary. But if you share this, it's eternal. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.